uh, President George W. Bush uh, appointed former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to head up the whole thing. So <laughs> the families did some uh, digging to see what, what you could know about uh, Dr. Kissinger. And, uh, and there was a meeting that happened in early December of 2002, where the family members on this family steering committee went to Dr. Kissinger's offices on a swanky, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Park Avenue or Madison Avenue, but anyway, it was a very nice place. And uh, when they went up there, it's uh, cold. They all have on their winter coats and so on. And uh, Kissinger has turned up the thermostat all the way. So suddenly the women are starting to have to peel off their coats and sweaters because it's just, it's just like, uh, <laughs> like it is at your part of the world at this time of year. You know, it's like summertime in, in Kissinger's office. And after the little uh, you know, in icebreaker stuff, uh, Lori Van Auken, whose husband Kenneth died in the North Tower, said, you know, Dr. Kissinger, we just we want to make sure there's no conflict of interest. We want to make sure that... Uh, you don't have any clients by the name of Bin Laden. Hmm. And at that point, uh, Dr. Kissinger practically falls off, his, off, his, off the couch, uh, spills coffee all over the coffee table. The women run into mother mode and, and rush off to get paper towels to clean up the mess. And the next day, Dr. Kissinger resigned. Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show a podcast discussing personal and environmental health, conversations searching for truths outside of the mainstream narrative. How much can we grow if we expand our thoughts beyond what's approved by the media and social media algorithms? Come with me and broaden our knowledge. Here's some alternate views, and let's make up our own minds. Fair Food Forager. Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair Food Forager. Welcome to another episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, the podcast brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app, the world's only ethical social media and sustainable food directory. So you can use this food directory when you're on the road to find ethical and sustainable food. Cafes, restaurants, farmers, markets, bulk food stores who are reducing the impact on the planet by reducing waste, food waste, plastic waste, sourcing locally, finding organics, anything like that and you can also share posts recipes food that you're growing your appreciation of nature your bushwalk your beach cleanup anything that helps each other and the planet today i'm talking to ray mcginnis he is an author who has written a book called unanswered questions what the september 11th families asked and the 9-11 commission ignored for a long time i've been wanting to interview someone on this topic i've had my doubts about what happened for quite a long time and Ray actually 
we've looked at the 9-11 Commission and what the families asked and then some of the answers or non-answers that they get will surely leave you asking your own questions. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Ray is another one of a long line of super nice people I've had the pleasure of interviewing on this podcast. So without further ado, here is Ray McGuinness. Ray McGinnis, welcome to the podcast. Oh, great to be with you, Paul. Wonderful to be here. We've just talked a little while before I hit record, and it could we're already on the way to what would be a good podcast. So today we're going to talk about mostly about your book and wherever that goes, and it's called Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. <laughs> Here, here I am, a Canadian, writing a book about an American tragedy which affected uh, the whole world, uh, eventually, in terms of world politics. But uh, it's an interesting uh, journey from uh, the event that happened uh, when I was in Joshua Tree National Park in southeastern California on the day of the attacks to finally sitting down and writing a book in around 2016 that got published in 2021. Someone had to write it. Let's talk about a little bit about you. You have a writing background, but how do you end up then writing this book? So my, I mean, my, my writing background, kind of, you know, mid, mid-career into my early 40s, I, I switched into uh uh, you know, I'd been working at retreat centers and helping uh, adults and youth do personal and spiritual growth. And then I, you know, went to the Center for Journal Therapy in Denver, Colorado, and the BAMP Center for Fine Arts and uh, looking at, at creative writing and poetry. And other things I'd done in, in undergraduate had helped me, you know, write essays and, and write. <laughs> and and I, uh, so I was... I was teaching, I was, you know, for, for two decades, you know, in, up to about 2000, up until the beginning of the pandemic, I was teaching uh, variously uh, memoir, journal writing workshops for people to recover from illness and injury or grief and loss or taking people on nature trails and stopping to write poetry. So I, so when it came to the events of September 11th, and I, I was at a retreat center with 60 Americans. I was the only person who was a foreign citizen. And I got to listen and see and, and, and you know what happened for people in this remote place without television. I got to hear about what happened. I didn't get to see it. And and two of the people in the in the room uh, had a financial officer who managed their, their portfolio who worked in one of the Twin Towers. And I remember how how frightened they were that 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 he might have died. And uh, so you know, I mean, all, all of that was very visceral. Even though I wasn't watching anything happening, I, I understood what was being told. One of the the leaders had a phone call from a friend of the East Coast, Eastern Seaboard of the USA. So uh, so I knew that there, the towers had been hit, the Pentagon had been hit, and so on. And then I. 
I was on a, uh, you know, I couldn't get back across ca- Canada because all all flights internationally were grounded. Well, all flights were grounded um, for for some time, and so it, you know, I, when I finally made my way across the border, I was on a bus from Seattle, Washington, uh, state up to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and and I would say that, I mean, I, first of all, I don't have a television, and I haven't had a television since the. The first Gulf, you know, the Persian Gulf War, but you know, uh, back in 1990, 91, I, I, I uh, made a decision at that time that just, you know, all the visuals and all the, all, all the, the slant, uh, I, I wanted to, 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 to I found reading uh, the news more, more useful to me than watching the news. All I could get the impression, but. I wanted to be more than I wanted to be able to be informed by more than just my own visceral reactions to to visuals. So so when it came to what was happening on on September 11th, I read uh, in the Vancouver Sun and the National Globe and Mail and listened to the radio on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I could see things in the BBC and so on. And I got, I mean, I, I think of myself as a pretty, a pretty good consumer of news. I studied political science and history in my undergraduate years. So I'm very interested, a bit of a, a wonk when it comes to the, the news. Uh, but as the years went by, I mean, a 9-11 commission had begun. I, I did happen to see Condoleezza Rice testify when I was visiting friends uh, for dinner one night, but uh, but the whole 9/11 Commission uh, went by, you know, hardly hardly a word about it in the in the local news, hardly a mention of it on on our radio radio newscasts. Uh, it, the report came out in the summer of 2004. Uh, maybe I was on a on a vacation or a holiday that week, but I didn't remember hearing anything about it. So. So life carried on. I'm teaching writing workshops. And I think around 2007, I happened to be in a bookstore in the United States. And um, I just finished a book while I was, you know, traveling. And on the bookshelf, I found a book by a woman named Kristen Breitweiser called Wake Up Call, The Political Education of a 9-11 Widow. Her husband, Ron, had died in the South Tower, and she was part of something called the Family Steering Committee for the 9-11 Independent Commission. And as I read her memoir, I was surprised to learn that if not for the family's efforts to to, uh, doggedly pursue the Bush administration and get them to have an investigation, there would never have been an investigation at all. And, And I thought, it's six years since the attacks. How is it that I, with my, my my news consuming habits, could go you know six years on and not know a single thing about the families uh, who lost loved ones who are responsible for any investigation at all, or their questions? And so, uh, so I began to compile. Uh, I went to their website, which you can go to today, the Family Steering Committee for the 9/11 Independent Commission. And, you, and they have still, I think, I mean, they had over a thousand questions and, and sort of subsets of questions uh, directed to different agencies and different cabinet ministers in the, in the George W. Bush administration. And uh, the names of the dozen people on the Family Steering Committee, of whom, whom I found out 
the majority who, if they talked to the press about how they voted in the year 2000, the majority of them had voted for President Bush. So these are not Democrats that have it out for the president. And in fact, um, like Patty Casaza, who's who was just a, a a nursing student with a with a with a young infant, and her husband's dead. She she thought, you know, having voted for the president, that you know, she thought, well, here we are. We're the families. We just want to know how to make the nation safe. Uh, they expected the government to to just jump on it. And so they were astonished that, uh, with all the resistance there was to any investigation and all the foot dragging. And then out, out would come Vice President Cheney saying, well, you know, I can't, we can't have an investigation because it will somehow give comfort to the terrorists if we have an investigation at all. So uh, this, was, this kind of behavior was, you know, really perplexing. So, so anyway, so, so I... Initially, I, I just went and, and I, I could find many of the articles that the families referred to online, and I created a computer file. And, and there it sat uh, for years. And, and I knew that there, I mean, I, I certainly came across numbers of other books. Uh, There's a reporter in Chicago called Bob Kemper who wrote a book called Rubble, which is about the re resilience of the families. Uh, there's lots of books about about the heroes of 9/11 and and the the military and so on, which sort of coffee table books that drill right down into the visuals of what what Ground Zero looked like after the attacks, but um, but there wasn't really much about the families. I mean, there was you know the odd thing Gail Sheehy on PBS had interviewed uh, the Jersey Girls, Kristen Breitweiser, Patty Casaza, Mindy Kleinberg, and. Lori Van Auken, but but there wasn't much, and you could you, you know you might even follow uh, Chris Matthews on MSNBC Hardball, but you could also miss the episode where he interviewed some of these women, and then you wouldn't know it even happened. So so I was kind of waiting for, to see you know some reporter of note would write a book like like I thought could be written, and it just wasn't coming out, and so around 2016. I decided to write a book, and I, I, I wanted to write the, the book that I wanted to write. I wanted to write it so that the people who took my writing workshops would be able to, to read the book and find it accessible. And that meant that I was not going to write a book, although I would have to deal with, with a times complex material, I was, I was trying to write a book that... Um, that would have enough of a personal story, the people that came to my poetry workshops or memoir workshops could keep on reading because of the human interest in, in, the, in the book. Because I knew, I knew, I mean, uh, the people that, that came to my writing workshops were all smart people, many of them women, many between 40, 40s and, and 70s. But they weren't the kind of people that sat on, on, news, sh on news shows on TV and sort of, you know, lapped up debate between uh, people on <laughs> cross-country checkup and on the CBC and so on. So, so um, and I saw quite a number of books that had already been out there, you know, critiquing the 9-11 Commission report or the government story. But those books, I felt, were not the kind of books that the people who were taking my writing workshops would pick up because it just started drilling down into, into a lot of discussion about about things that people would start rolling their eyes about just because they, they found it like they, they would just find it overwhelming. 
So, um, so, but I thought, well, I've got these 12 people who are, who are members of the family steering committee. I've got Mary Fetchett, who's, whose son Brad died in the South Tower. I've got uh, Lori Van Auken, whose husband Kenneth died in the North Tower. I've got uh, Monica Gabrielle, whose husband Richard died. I've got Sally Reagan Hart, whose probationary firefighter son Christian died, and, and so on. And so I wanted to, to, to be able to layer in their personal comments throughout the book. And and many of them were able to, uh, they were asked uh, to testify before the 9-11 Commission. So I cite quite extensively in places in different chapters the questions or the, or the statements that they would make to the 9-11 Commission. And that way I was able to sprinkle it throughout the book so that so that even if a, there was a question perhaps about, you know, how could the, you know, why were the uh, the doors locked on the rooftop of the uh, of the uh, of the towers, so that the, so that people couldn't uh, uh, go up to the rooftops and be uh, rescued the way the way it happened in, in 1993 in, in February of 93 with the North Tower helicopter rescue. Uh, I didn't want to have just anyone asking the question or myself asking it randomly. I wanted to put that in, in the words of Sally Reaganhart or somebody who was asking the question, just to remind the reader that the question isn't just asked, you know, academically. It's asked by somebody who lost lost a family member. One point that you raised there is that you didn't watch TV, and I, th- I think I'm in a similar position where I was travelling around Europe at the time when it happened, so I didn't have a TV, I didn't have access to it, and even if I did see it, I wasn't familiar with the language of the country I was in anyway, So, but I could see the images and, of course, you know, I understood what happened, but I didn't form an opinion on what happened based on what the media was telling me and had always had a little bit of I guess skepticism about the way it happened, and then that has grown since. That's why you ask these questions because it's also important that you didn't write this book with a formed opinion, did you? You telling the story based on the various thoughts and questions of the people who had family members in the towers. It's very interesting because if if I had decided I was going to write a book about the history of, say, what's called the 9-11 truth movement, which is a bit of an unwieldy uh, <laughs> grab bag of different personalities, all who do not agree with each other, but nonetheless, there's cer- certain common themes and criticism, strong criticism of the Bush administration, I would have been writing a different book uh, with different conclusions even. But here I have a dozen people, uh, variously re- uh, registered Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, all with their common gr- story of grief, uh, uh, unique to them, but, but a common story, uh, and then who are representing tens of thousands of families. And, and I found it interesting because, as well, the public statements of I mean, there's some people who've been pretty quiet since the since the report came out in 2004. But many of the family members have spoken to the press, uh, some more often than others. And I can see that of those dozen people that all went through the same experience, I'd say probably there's at least three or maybe four that are quite comfortable with, or even boosters of the official account 
of the government. Then you have, excuse me, then you have a few more people who uh, may be resigned to the official account, but are highly critical of, say, the Port Authority's lack of evacuation of people out of the buildings or some other, or the, or the lack of, of, um, of diligence on the part of, of the CIA or, or the Pentagon or, or other, other, uh, other agencies regarding uh, the over dozen warnings by other governments uh, in the months ahead of the attacks. And then you have about, probably about half who, who uh, would say that, uh, believe that there's a cover-up and or complicity on the part of the government and then there's also, throughout all of this, there is the position of the families, which is one of caution. And their caution is, if there were ever to be another investigation, in fact, what I would say a proper investigation, with real witnesses swearing, you know, and, and, uh, on, you know, and consequences like perjury for lying and so on, um, they want to make sure that nothing that they've said in the public record could harm um, the, that uh, possible uh, subsequent investigation. And so, uh, well, there are numbers of people who who I write about who um, who I, if I could look inside their heads, I would hunch that they would say that the government was was involved, but out of a caution not to prejudice. Um, the possibility or the hope of a future investigation to correct the record of an investigation which seems to have been uh, of a report that was written to protect uh, the president uh, at the time, to not embarrass George W. Bush, and to not ruin his reelection chances. Um, so these families have to walk a line of, of raising questions but not accusing anyone of anything. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting focus then for me as an author to fairly reflect what that dance is for those families that still are not satisfied, that still believe the government lied to them, but yet won't say. I mean, they're not. None of them are saying, uh, you know. There's an old board game called Clue. You know, they're not saying Dick Cheney did it in the drawing room with a candlestick. You know, so they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not. Uh, so, I mean, there are a few people like Bob McElvain, uh, who's lost his son, Bobby McElvain Jr., who will say 100% he's certain that the government uh, was responsible, full stop. But, but I didn't run into that many people who would say that, partly out of, out of their concern that they not prejudice any possible investigation that might happen. In, in, in the years ahead, if you know, and who knows? I mean, I don't think that that necessarily is going to happen. But I, 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 I read their cautious statements to the press with that in mind. With the nine eleven truth movement, I'm guessing that they are are they pushing for a another inquiry and one that actually forces, as you said, that some accountability. There, there's, there's a a lawyer's 9-11 group that is trying to have, um, bring evidence uh, to, to get uh, a, I think, a district court of the United States to have, uh, to have an investigation. I mean, there have been a number of different uh, efforts 
on the part of 9-11 truth groups uh, writ large uh, over the years to have a new investigation. Some of them have, tr have tried to do this through uh, having the city of New York itself have an investigation. But the city of New York's had sought a legal opinion, and their lawyers said that it was not in the interest of the city of, of New York to have an investigation or to know what else you might learn from having another investigation. So it, it's, it, it's been um, at every turn when, when the families have wanted to have a new investigation, and numbers of the family members that, that I am familiar with, uh, that I write about in my book, some of them have spoken at at discrete events um, in support of uh, a new investigation, uh, you know, and 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 they have been. Uh, I mean, there are family members that that have been, you know, involved in in nine eleven uh, efforts for a new investigation. But there's been always a bit of a, an arm's length relationship between some of the of the organizations, and so it's. It's kind of like there's there's the groups there's there's families but then uh, they're they're not they're not necessarily in, in you know the family members aren't necessarily people who are like the the secretary of the, of the committee mm -hmm. or not uh, New York nine eleven can group or whatever so it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting mix. We'll get into some of the questions and points that you raise in the book, but. From what I gather, was the only reason they held this commission was just to tick a box to show that they'd made an effort? Uh, well, the president um, and those close to him did not want to have an investigation. They wanted it to be like a, a behind-closed-doors um, intelligence uh, committee or subcommittee of, of Congress, perhaps. Uh, which could have been just under uh, under seal then for, for for decades, and no one would know what they concluded. Um, but it was the families. The families kept pushing for an investigation. They had a rally in June of of two thousand and two. Uh, Kristen Breitweiser was brought before. There was a joint intelligence committee of Congress and the Senate, uh, and. And John McCain and Joe Lieberman, who were senators, had both pushed for that to happen. And they had Kristen Breitweiser, whose husband Ron died in the South Tower, testify on the 18th of September of 2002. And in that, uh, in her in her testimony, she asked questions like, "How is it that uh, that the government that doesn't know anything about about what's going on at all can, can suddenly be identifying the actual names of all the terrorists and the FBI knows every everybody's name and where they were, uh, you know, in, in a in a in some in some airport in in Maine or in some grocery store or some gas station here, you know, like all of this information just sort of all of a sudden comes up, uh, you know. I, in the morning hours of, of the attack September 11th. And, and the families are saying, well, if you, if you really, you know, the story officially is we were just totally blindsided. We had no idea. And, you know, just awful thing happened. And at the very same time, you have the FBI putting together all of the, all of the, uh, the profiles of everybody and where they were here, there, and everywhere, uh, you know, by noon on the day of the attacks. And, 
And the, uh, the litany of questions that Kristen Breitweiser asked the uh, Joint Intelligence Committee of Congress and the Senate on that day in September 18, 2002, was so uh, riveting and shocking uh, that uh, a White House uh, press secretary said that a train was coming and nothing could stop it. And so there was this incredible pressure then for the government to have an investigation. And then what happened was, after they said in mid-November of 2002, we're going to have an investigation, uh, President George W. Bush uh, appointed uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to head up the whole thing. And uh, so the families did some uh, digging to see what, what you could know about uh, Dr. Kissinger. And... Uh, and there was a meeting that happened in early December of 2002 where the family members on this family steering committee went to Dr. Kissinger's offices on a swanky, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Park Avenue or Madison Avenue. But anyway, it was a very nice place. And uh, when they went up there, it's uh, cold. They all have on their winter coats and so on. Mostly, you know, 11 out of the 12 members of this com steering committee, the families are, are women, one man. And uh, Kissinger has turned up the thermostat all the way. So suddenly the women are starting to have to peel off their coats and sweaters because it's just, it's just like, uh, <laughs> like it is at your part of the world at this time of year. You know, it's like summertime in, in Kissinger's office. And uh, he's got coffee and, and, and dainties. And, uh, and after the little, uh, you know, in icebreaker stuff, uh, Lori Van Auken, whose husband Kenneth died in the North Tower, said, you know, Dr. Kissinger, we just we want to make sure there's no conflict of interest. We want to make sure that uh, you don't have any clients by the name of Bin Laden. <laughs> and at that point, uh, Dr. Kissinger practically falls off his off his off the couch, uh, spills coffee all over the coffee table. The women run into mother mode and, and rush off to get paper towels to clean up the mess. And the next day, Dr. Kissinger resigned. Interesting to put a, uh, a mass murderer in charge of an investigation into a scene where thousands of people die. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, mainstream papers, Chicago Tribune and so on, were all saying before before he resigned that this was a bad idea, that he had a a long track record of pension for secrecy and, uh, and uh, dirty political deals. So, you know, uh, there's a kind of collective sigh of relief, even in the establishment, that Kissinger was not going to be the, the guy heading it up. And then, uh, then they appointed uh, Lee Hamilton as the co-chair. Uh, Hamilton was involved in the kind of... Uh, the Iran-Contra scandal. He, he looked at Oliver North and... Uh, and said he he could never believe uh, I looked Oliver North in the face and could never believe that Oliver North would lie to me about about what happened with Iran Contra. Uh, Lee Hamilton was also involved in the in the cover up with the uh, the arms for hostages stuff that happened with uh, Iran. You know that uh, making sure that that uh, the hostages would suddenly be all released on the day of Ronald Reagan's inauguration and all of that. That's uh, that whole event back in the winter of 79, which certainly led to 
Jimmy Carter, you know, losing to Ronald Reagan. Um, so, uh, and, and then the families find out that, that uh, <clears throat> Lee Hamilton is is not only somebody who's who's he's a he's a best friend often goes on vacations he, hamilton and his wife go off on vacations with dick cheney and his wife and Ra- Donald rumsfeld and his wife but also uh lee hamilton doesn't want there to be any um swearing uh, under oath he doesn't want there to be subpoenas of, of any information from any agency he doesn't want there to be any open hearings I mean, you know, they got they got to have open hearings uh, about half as many uh, as as they wanted to. But imagine having somebody who's uh, who's pivotally involved in in chairing the commission doesn't want to have any public hearings at all. You know, and then you've got uh, uh, Tom McKean, the former governor of New Jersey, who's also involved uh, in in a consortium that wants to have a pipeline across Afghanistan. So there seems to be a little bit of conflict of interest there too, mm. uh, you know. So they've got all of that going on, and then and then they find out that uh, Philip Zelico is the executive director, and he's really the person who's making all the decisions and uh, you know behind the scenes, and not wanting the families to be able to talk to any of the eighty staff that are part of the commission work or. Uh, you know, there's there's just all kinds of control going on in the background. Um, so it's it's a very uh, you know so the fan, you know, so so the, the government did get to have an investigation, but they got to have it on their terms uh, by running it in a very secretive way. Uh, and 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 the you know the families, you know people like Mary Fetchett, whose son Brad died in the South Tower, said she was never involved politically before this at all. And so for these families to be going into this kind of political arena, they're, they're having to learn from scratch. And, and many of them begin with the kind of goodwill that people have, especially when you've lost a family member. You're hoping that everybody in position uh, who's running the commission and, and in the White House, too, is doing the right thing. And then they keep running up, running up against uh, uh, evidence, uh, real life experience that tells them that that the government and the commission are slow walking the whole thing and kind of running out the clock. You mentioned Dick Cheney. He was a uh, a board member of Halliburton. There's also is there a connection with where they talk about the new Pearl Harbor? Yes, it's interesting. You know, I mean, like the. Uh, <laughs> When I'm writing my book, uh, uh, and I was only able to cover about a dozen of, of their many questions, but I, I looked to see, and indeed, that the families did ask about uh, the po- project for a new American century, uh, and uh, the project for a new American century, which Dick Cheney and about 25 people in the Bush administration were were were, par- were party to. Um, was it's a think tank uh, from 1996-97 and they wanted um, they talked about how it was important for America to really you know for the 21st century to be the the, the American century for you know let's make sure that uh, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, Libya a few other countries are all under um, American uh, sphere of dominance. 
And like, how are we going to get that kind of a change, uh, you know, in the Middle East, you know, to secure oil and other other geopolitical effort, efforts? Um, there, there's going to be a lot of resistance on the part of American citizens to start building up, uh, you know, new a new arms race in America, except for perhaps a new Pearl Harbor in reference to the December seventh, nineteen forty one attack by the Japanese on. Uh, on Hawaii, and uh, Beverly Eckert, whose whose husband Sean Rooney died, said she found it disturbing that there would be people who were in the in the Bush White House that thought that a new Pearl Harbor would be what she says a good idea. Like, why would you want something like that to happen? And. Uh, Patty Casaza, uh, whose who's, who's husband John died in the North Tower, uh, was at a talk, uh, an effort to have a, a new investigation. Uh, this was back in 2007, and spoke uh, together with Lori Van Auken at a, a church in, in the Lower East Side of New York City. And, and she talked about uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was in multiple administrations uh, going back to, uh, even even to John F. Kennedy, and how um, he'd written a book in the late 90s, I think, called The Grand Chessboard, and talks also about about the need for something like a new Pearl Harbor, that there, there needs to be a, something, you know, shocking uh, uh, on, on, the, on the political landscape that will turn Americans, uh, unite them uh, against a common enemy. And... Um, you know, it's one thing when you've got, uh, I mean, in, 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 in life, in the history, uh, things do happen. Suddenly, someone declares war against someone else. But, but to, be, um, to be planning or hoping or trying to move things along insofar as you have the power to do it and suggesting that these kind of things would be a good idea is, is very concerning. We were introduced to each other through Jeremy Kuzmarov, and mm-hmm. uh, I did a couple of podcasts with him on the CIA. And then you look at some of their actions around the world and how the Muslim world has been painted as this this enemy that the West needs. But if you visit a Muslim country, you find out that they really don't care much about the West at all. They just want to get on with their lives. But you can see when these things these events tying together and they're speaking like this, why people would come to conclusions that the the government or the security state may be involved in events like this. I mean, so, so much happens that, that, uh, I mean, you've got uh, a shocking event, Uh, nearly 3000 people have died. Uh, And then of course there are wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and more uh, American soldiers die, and then, and then you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of civilians die in these other countries. So uh, all of this, and then you've got the grim, the grim news stories. You've got you've got uh, orange alerts and red alerts all the time in the in the news in America. And other other places are reporting it too about shoe bombers and and whatever else, and. And so, it, 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 again, it's all overwhelming. It's emotionally 
uh, just saturating for people. And it's hard to step back and say, what am I being told? Hmm. Why is the president saying, um, wh why, why is it that the president, uh, when, when he's being told in an in a elementary school classroom in Florida that, uh, that both of the towers have been hit, why does he carry on for 20 or 25 minutes and read a story about a pet goat to a grade two class? H how does that dis response make any sense? Why, why is it that what he says to the nation is uh, in the days after is, is the reason that these attacks happen is because they, they hate us for our freedoms. They, they, you know, they hate us because we can go shopping. I mean, it's just it, a lot of things that, that are sort of said. I mean, in the moment, it, 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 I don't know how it hits us, but looking back at it, you know, 10 or 20 years later, it, some of these statements just don't make any sense. And, and I think, too, the families are wanting, uh, you know, every time somebody comes up on, on the stand and testifies, whether under oath or not, before the 9-11 Commission, the families are hoping that this will be, will be the person who will say something that helps make sense. And I remember as a, you know, as a, somebody following the story uh, and then eventually writing about it, I remember when I heard Richard Clark who was a counterterrorism czar under both Clinton and Bush, uh, go before the 9-11 Commission. And he said, um, your nation failed you, I failed you. That the, that the job of, of the government is to connect the dots so that something like this does not happen. Now, I remember hearing that. I remember uh, seeing uh, the numbers of family members, the Jersey girls, go before the press and say, you know, thank goodness, here is Richard Clark is the first person who's acknowledged uh, shortcomings on the part of the government, you know. And I thought of Richard Clark for years as one of the good guys. However, I learned later on that Richard Clark, in his capacity as counterterrorism czar, had received two warnings in early 1999 about plans on the part of the CIA to apprehend Osama bin Laden, uh, allegedly because he was, he was blamed or and named as the person responsible for American embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania, which had happened, I think, in 1998. So Richard Clark happened to be uh, close friends with people in the United Arab Emirates royal family. Uh, some of the UAA royals were uh, hunting buddies of Osama bin Laden, and they would go bird hunting in, in Afghanistan or, or Pakistan or wherever. So uh, when bin Laden was going to go... Uh, uh, you know, hunting, and, and, and the CIA thought that they could, they knew where he was going to be, that they could apprehend him. Richard Clark uh, slipped word to the UAA royals, and bin Laden got away. And this happened twice, in February and March of 1999. Now, if you're a family member who's lost loved ones on September 11th, and the named perpetrator by the president, who's responsible for all of this, is Osama bin Laden, how does it make them feel when they find out that the counterterrorism czar, who's most responsible for preventing terrorism in America, 
being the person who gave bin Laden the slip to get to evade capture on, in relationship to two embassy bombings in the late 90s. I mean, treason, maybe, is, is, is what you think of when, when someone, it, like, it's, it's worse than falling down his job. He's making the opposite call to what he's supposed to do, be doing. And, and another example of this kind of, of thing that happens over and over again and part of key people, uh, on the morning of the attacks, of September 11th, uh, about, you know, the first plane hits the North Tower at 8.46 a.m. At that time, the CIA director, who is George Tennant, is having breakfast with former Oklahoma Senator David Boren at the St. Regis Hotel in Washington, D.C. And he's on the phone, Tennant is on the phone about 8.50 a.m. Uh, to people in CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And, and very quickly, he's told about the first tower being hit. Now, he, he apparently says, in, as reported in the press, I think the Washington's Post and so on, that he announced in this phone call immediately that he was 110% certain that this was the, the big terrorist attack that the CIA had been waiting for, that Osama bin Laden was behind it, and this is a terrorist attack against the Twin Towers. Well, for the family members to hear that, they're saying, well, well, if, Mr. CIA Director, you were 110% certain that this was a terrorist attack, why did you not assign somebody at the CIA to phone the Port Authority and tell them to evacuate the building? Because you have people in the Port Authority you know, up, up till the time the South Tower collapses at uh, two minutes to ten, you've got people with bullhorns, you've got people who, who are in their offices and they just think, my building's on fire, I better get out of here. Which is what you might have thought if you were in kindergarten in a, in a grade school. You wouldn't think, oh, the grade three class is on fire, I'm going to stay put. You'd go out into the parking lot or the field. And so these smart people in the, in the offices are, 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 get, are running down the stairs and they're being met by people with bullhorns for the Port Authority saying, you're in America, you are safe, go back to your offices, go back or you'll be fired. Why would you do you know, that? Because uh, like what's the worst that can happen is if you are safe, you go out onto the street and you spend a few hours there until you know you're safe and then you go back into work. Why would you stop people yeah. from evacuating? Yeah. I mean, it makes no sense at all. I mean, and, and it's, it's one of these things that just, it's just so confounding, this kind of, you know, again, uh, I mean, may, maybe somebody, you know, may, maybe somebody in the Port Authority is so traumatized by the fact that the building's been hit that they, that they're that they're saying stuff that doesn't make sense or worse i don't know but but the only thing i can tell you of course we all know that the people who disobeyed those those instructions are the ones who lived is it also true that the doors at the top of the building as you said were were locked but were they locked just before this happened or sometime after they they were they were locked um, that morning, I mean, there there are uh, 
it's it's hard to understand um, why you would lock lock those doors. Uh, now, a couple of things. I mean, I I had to start asking people in Vancouver about access to rooftop buildings in a, in skyscrapers, residential skyscrapers, and commercial skyscrapers in my. You know, and I mean, I, and I, I went, I went up quite a number of, 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 of to rooftops and quite a few skyscrapers in Vancouver to find out that many of them, the doors were, were not locked. And I, I've, I've anecdotally heard this from numbers of people that live in, in, in Manhattan as well. Now, there, there are fire regulations for the, the fire department of New York, but every, you know, every exit door in a building, which includes the rooftop doors, are supposed to be accessible in case of fire. Mm -hmm. And in 1993, in February of 93, uh, about 48 people or so uh, got to the rooftop when there was a truck bomb in the North Tower, and helicopters from, I think, a police detachment in Brooklyn came and rescued all of those people. It would only make sense that, that it, if saving lives is important, that people in the Port Authority would say, hey, look what happened. Uh, the rooftop doors were accessible, and 47, 48 people lived because we, we rescued them from the rooftop. Wouldn't you want to do exactly that again if something happens in the future? But instead, the Port Authority is telling the press in the days following this tragedy, well, we didn't want to have the rooftop doors open uh, accessible because we're afraid of people damaging expensive broadcasting equipment. We were afraid people were going to commit suicide. Now, I know from talking and listening to, to numbers of people who were speaking with their loved ones who were employees in the, nor in the North and South Towers that day, that, that they were, you know, if they're leaving a, a voicemail message and didn't get to speak to their family member or if they spoke to them, you know, their, their every wish was to be able to see their family members later that day. And so to suggest that they would get up to the rooftop, see a waiting helicopter either sitting on the, on the, on the approved heli spot that the Port Authority had obtained from the city of New York, or having a ladder dropping down and they can get onto the ladder, uh, or, you know, rope ladder and go up. They would not think, oh, I could get rescued and go, go to the ground. But no, I'm going to commit suicide or, 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 or damage broadcasting equipment instead. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's insulting to the family members and to the, to the memories of these people. But this is the kind of story that went out there. Now, I mean, there, there, is, there is discussion about whether or not, uh, you know, there's a, a tussle administratively between the fire department of New York and the police department of New York. And, you know, maybe somebody could have, you know, done and should have done something. But, but it, it just doesn't make sense. And, and I, I, there's an exhibit uh, in, uh, in Amsterdam in, the, in around 2016 or 17. And they had uh, all kinds of photos of, of, the, of the Twin Towers and Ground Zero before, before this calamity. And in it, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of photos of tourists who went up on the rooftop of the South Tower, where there was an open air walk around, there's a railing, but you can walk around on the rooftop. 
And, and people are paying $13 US for, for each little trip up to the rooftop. This is a revenue stream, you know, from the mid-70s up until the 10th of September 2001. And the Port Authority was not asking tourists, as they paid their $13 to go up to the rooftop, whether or not they had mental health problems or felt suicidal. They just kept taking the money and, and, and getting the revenue stream every day with you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people going to the rooftop every single day. And it was not as though they were having a, an epidemic of suicides. It was just people taking photos, leaning against the railing. And I talked to one man, Bill Brinier, who's a, an architect, and he remembers going up on, uh, on the less visited North Tower on the 50th anniversary of, uh, of D-Day from World War II. And, you know, so, so people were doing this, you know, and there was no concern about, about, su about suicides on the, on the rooftops. But, but this is the kind of thing that I think is, is the devil, you know, in the details and how, and how you will get people to, uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't know the intention, but I think it's, it's dishonest to, to put out explanations to get people to think, oh, well, of course, they couldn't have had any rescues because, you know, people would have committed suicide, you know. I, I think it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's just it's just very dishonest, and uh, and you wonder why why are people why are people saying things like that? It, it definitely seems like too much of a coincidence to believe that they would have decided to lock those doors the day of or the day before this this happened. It's it's just a little bit too unbelievable. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of things that are pretty unbelievable, and and it's just. Uh, uh, I, I think that uh, you know there are coincidences, but a lot of coincidences. You know, the more you have, the more they pile up. Uh, the more it's it's hard to believe that the story we've been told is is uh, is trustworthy. You know, and I, I mean, for me, if if the family steering committee members, uh, upon upon reading the report that the the nine eleven commission put out, if they'd all stood. Um, uh, you know, and given a press uh, conference, and it all said, we're really happy with this 9-11 commission report. The government has answered uh, a great majority of our questions. Uh, we're satisfied. Um, uh, we're just going to move on with our lives. Thank you very much, uh, George W. Bush. Then someone like me wouldn't have any, any book to write because, mm -hmm. uh, well, if I, if I was going to write a book, it would be about, isn't it great that when... Uh, when an atrocity, when a tragedy happens like this, that the government steps up to the plate, does the right thing, acts transparently, and citizens can be reassured. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that's not the book I ended up having to write about. enjoyed part one of my conversation with Ray McGuinness. I'll be back with Ray very soon and we just continue this conversation and some of this stuff that will blow your mind on 
the way that the families of the victims of 9-11 were just about completely ignored and uh, more on Ray's book. You can find Ray's book at unanswerdquestions.ca and I believe you can also find the book on Amazon. I'll leave some links to that in the show notes. Um, But please check in in the next week or so and we'll have part two of this conversation. So thanks for listening. Don't forget to download the Fair Food Forager app. It's also here to help you find ethical and sustainable food and food that is organic, local, supporting small businesses, reduced plastic packaging, anything really to help support you and the planet. And you can share good news stories, learn from each other and just feel good for a change about the future and what we can do to help each other and the planet. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review it, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. Thanks again to Ash Grunwald. This song is River from the album Now. Until next time, bye. Just to prove it like the food you're trying to stop me I'm a death to flip